Hey, everybody, this is Alex. Hey, it's Natasha. And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch, TechCrunch's subscription product. Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there. It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you. Yes, you can use, I think, the best code there is. So don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is Equity, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription. So head over to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. Use that code. Make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet. And now let's do a show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Thanksgiving special edition of Equity. We are doing something today that is actually a first for the show. We have up for you a deep dive into the world of EdTech, and we are going to be guided by none other than our own Natasha Mascarenas, who is our EdTech expert. Natasha, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I am joking, kind of, but I think there's no better way to start the holidays off with than some existential conversations on education, the future of jobs and careers. So hopefully everyone can hunker down with whatever they're eating and drinking and enjoy the show. Well, let's start back at the beginning. You've been covering EdTech for about a year now. And I'm kind of curious if you were to summarize what happened in 2020 in the EdTech space, how would you break that down for us? Yeah. So I think my third story at TechCrunch was the story about Stanford closing down campuses. And I've kind of followed education since then. And I think we definitely saw the aha moment where we realized that EdTech would be something that wasn't just going to be a March conversation, but would be something that stays in our inboxes, in VC minds longer than, than the scramble. You know, March or February, we saw COVID shut the country down. Schools became remote. The term Zoom school became half a joke, half of like a lot of angst. <laughs> um, and then and then we saw a lot of money go into ed tech. We saw a bunch of unicorns get born. And now we are in November. We are back in remote schooling. We have had some learned lessons, but we still have a lot of gaps and things are still breaking. And just before we dive into the interviews, can you sketch for everyone listening what you're going to take us through over the next little bit of time? Yeah. So for this episode, I wanted to focus the most on higher education because I think higher education is what's most at risk right now. K through 12 isn't going to go anywhere because the reality is 90% of students still need to go to the public school system. It's the adult learners. It's the people who are now looking to get employed and can afford to do so that are going to be the decision makers that choose how ed tech responds to consumer demand. I think there's a lot to be said about higher education and where it's going next. All right. Well, I am here to be your amanuensis. So let's talk about the first person you spoke to, a student named, I think it's Ian Dillick. So Ian slid into my DMs to talk about education. (laughs) He's actually a founder. But before that, he was a college student from Nashville, Tennessee, went to undergrad in Loyola, based in Chicago, studied entrepreneurship. Uh, Entrepreneurship was one of my majors, the other being information systems, something sort of more technical that has a clearer path to a career should I decide not to go down the entrepreneurial route. And then the pandemic hit and everything changed for Ian. March hit this year. It was very, very jarring going from an entrepreneurship class in person where it's all about the conversations you're having between students and the professor. It's very much not a lecturable environment to suddenly everyone's on Zoom. 
half the people aren't showing up to class because they overslept, and overall just a much less engaging experience, especially for me, and it seems like for most of my peers as well. So it doesn't sound like that went uh, particularly well. No, not at all. This was an experience I heard from a lot of students. And, you know, I talked to more than just Ian, didn't make it into the podcast, but I wanted to ask anyone I could, is, is anything working? Didn't get any positive notes. And same thing goes for parents, from teachers. Even Sebastian Thrun said this year was a lost year in education. In, in, in California, uh, roughly half the high school students hadn't even logged into a computer system by the mid of the year because it was so hard to get them to, to computer systems. I think you look back at this, at this year as a bit of a lost year in education for many, many, many kids, sadly. And for just people who don't know, who is Sebastian Thrun and uh, why does he matter in this case? Sure. So, you know, he's maybe best known as the founder and CEO of Kitty Hawk, which is innovating on flying car technology. Before that, he was the creator of the Google Glass. But for this episode, I talked to him about a then controversial career move, which was dropping out of his tenured gig at Stanford and starting a company called Udacity, which would just bring lectures that he was giving at Stanford online to more students. Do you think that, you know, ed tech, the state of innovation it is, obviously with Udacity, you guys have kind of pivoted away from higher ed, but do you think ed tech more generally is ready to, to deliver on that sort of vision? Well, I'd say 2020 was the big wake-up year for EdTech. From like one week to the next, everybody became an online teacher. And it's been, it's been hard. I mean, people mean well, they have great intentions, but I think most educators weren't really prepared for it. And juggling Zoom and, and whatever to get your students' attention has been challenging for every instructor. I mean, I'm, as a father of a 12-year-old son, I really hope soon to have him back in physical school. He misses his friends. And he misses playing with them. He misses sports and stuff like this. Uh, obviously, none of us wanted a, a pandemic like COVID, and we're all suffering from it. There's, there's, like, there's not, no second guessing. I'd say many of his teachers had a really hard time adjusting to Zoom because what you do in the classroom when you have a captive audience doesn't really work at home and the kids be on Facebook at the same time or being, being not, not, not totally focused. So he's, an, he's a believer in that tech, and even he is saying that this didn't go very well. So what Sebastian is reflecting on, Zoom school isn't working, but we have to do it anyways. You know, Ian, for example, is one student who doesn't see the value of going back. Instead, he is taking a break from Loyola and is starting a self-driving car technology startup. And in his words, you know, best case scenario, he doesn't have to go back. Like, What was keeping you in college until you dropped out? Like, what was the biggest benefit of, of college? Yeah, for me, I think for college, it's about the signal of a degree that you get. You know, some people go to college for the community, like fraternities and sororities are still a huge part of the college experience for a whole lot of people. But for me, it was that I thought that a college degree would be an essential part of a career for me before I, I realized that it wouldn't necessarily be. It was just about having that signal of a degree to show employers and whoever that I would be worth hiring. So Natasha, tell me a little bit more about signaling. So when colleges closed down and the campus was removed from the equation, people had to start thinking about higher ed as honestly a product. And I think there's three different products you see with higher education. There's the network you get, there's the content you learn, and then there's the signal and credential you get from going to a school like Harvard or Stanford. And so all of a sudden people had to juggle between the three and in some cases pick which one they wanted to prioritize more than others. 
You know, so thinking about this, though, in the context of ed tech companies, uh, you know, they didn't have a campus before. So they didn't have to change that much. So where are ed tech companies going inside of this broader signaling question? Yeah, you know, EdTech has been thinking about it for so long. When Udacity first started, they thought, why not democratize access to education at a school like Harvard and Stanford? That way, you get the content, you get the signal of, I got a Harvard education, and everyone's happy, right? You know, at, at some point, Sebastian even made the claim that there would only be 10 universities that needed to exist in the world to deliver half of education. Mind yeah, so technically, I think I was slightly misquoted. My intent was to say at least half the education will be delivered by no more than 10 institutions. Because there's always some, some exotic niche education that's not going to be covered by these major institutions. It was radical at the time. He's kind of stepped back since because it came down to it's much harder to offer a Harvard education at scale when Harvard education's true value is that it's exclusive. When Harvard announced that it wasn't going to lower its tuition, everyone kind of stormed to Twitter to be like, well, that's not going to impact its enrollment rate because no matter what, even if they just send you a textbook and say, like, send us back this in a year and we'll give you a degree, people will show up to Harvard. So you talked to one of my favorite investors, Jamira Herrera. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, Jamira is an investor at Cowboy Ventures, which actually isn't an edtech focused fund. But that's part of the reason I'm interested in the fact that she's been focused on the category for far longer than the pandemic. I think I'm recording too. Test, test, test. Okay. Jamira, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to, to chat about this. I feel like I've been spending so many years in this space and it's finally getting, like you said, the attention it deserves um, in a really weird time and unprecedented time, but excited to be here. Yeah, I think the first time me and you ever chatted was just me asking you to explain like what have I not paid attention? Like, what have I missed for the past like years? And I was doing prep for the show and I typed in higher education at Jamira underscore Herrera. And I had seen you've been tweeting about it since at least 2012. And so I was like, oh my God, there's so much to catch up on, but you've been a great resource. So thank you. <laughs> I don't even want to know what I've been talking, what I was talking about in 2012. Lord. That's kind of a perfect intro into like my first question, which is I wanted to just get your thoughts on a tweet you had done a couple months ago about higher education and different products. So you said something like it offers content and skills, credentials, brand and network. I the reason I, I read that tweet was I have seen, especially in the last two or three years, a big focus on trying to provide alternative forms of higher education. And a lot of the emphasis initially was focused primarily on if you provide content and you provide the skills, then everything else will get done, which totally ignores the way higher education has functioned for hundreds of years, which is content and skills are really one component. And if we're totally honest, especially at call it the top 50 schools, that's not really the thing that people focus that much on. Like I said, the political science and now I do venture capital. I can't tell you the last time I used anything in political <laughs> science in my current career. Content and skills, that's really like what you learn in the classroom. I think in general, what we're seeing right now is a movement towards how can we actually make what you're learning in the classroom applicable to what you're using in your career. And then the other piece was network, which is, in my opinion, probably the most important component. Look, like network is actually the only defensible thing, like network and brand is the only defensible thing that a, that a college has and that actually compounds over time. The more Harvard graduates you have in the world, the more defensible that moat is. So one question that I do ask 
some of these ed tech solutions or these alternative higher ed institutions is how do you think about building your brand and actually creating that network of alumni when they graduate? One would instinctively or intuitively think like the more people that you have, let's take Lambda School, for example, like Lambda School, I won't comment on like outcomes or anything, but the reality is, is that it's built a brand. People know what Lambda School is and it's built a brand and it's trying to build like an alumni network in specific geographies. If you're aiming to build something at scale, what you should be thinking about is how do I build a brand for what I am creating, the product that I'm creating, the learning that I'm teaching. We teach and create incredible graduates. They're high quality and they perform incredibly well. And now those graduates hire graduates that are from our institution. And so you have to think about it that way. Like we're not just like, hey, let's teach our students, get them a job and okay, bye. Enjoy your life and we hope you're successful because that's not what Harvard and Stanford and Yale do. No, they like call you up every three days and say, hey, give us money and then come to this event. Or at least that's my experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but the idea is like, you have to think about the alumni network. You have to think about the brand that you're creating. And that really is, and I tell everyone, that's really the only defensible thing that you're going to have as one of these companies, because content is a commodity. Anyone can create a software engineering curriculum out there. There's so much free material out there. That's not the the hard part. The hard part is the, obviously the wraparound services and the pedagogy, but then the other piece that's the only thing that's defensible is the network and brand. So how can ed tech provide a similar amount of signaling to traditional higher education? Yeah, I think it's an existential question. You can't democratize something that does not want to be democratized, or if it's innate value is just that it you know, is only for X percent of people in the world. And so with Udacity, for example, they started out trying to replace higher education and soon found product market fit, like a couple other companies, in working with enterprises instead. And so to answer your question, Alex, like the idea of how how do you try and combat this whole concept of signal? I think you try and avoid it altogether from the get-go, help more so on the credentialing, and then maybe some form of success down the road is what Sebastian hoped for in 2012, which is flexing your Udacity degree. That's that's the goal scenario for these companies. If you, you know, had to do it all over again and, and begin, you know, Udacity this year, what, you know, what would you be trying to solve? From today's perspective, the, the grand vision stands, which is we're using digital technology to democratize education to the world. And over the years, we found our niche to be more the professional corporate market where we work with corporations and go into corporations or countries and say, we're going to upscale for you a thousand people at a time. That was not our original approach. Our original approach was to go to people and say, look, you can go to college or you can come to us and get another degree and we can prove to you that another degree is cheaper and better. And that formula, unfortunately, didn't quite work as well as I hoped. I believe the, the Zoom experience as many parents have is unfortunately a bit of a setback but at the same time, these moments of pandemic are moments of incredible innovation where we shed old habits and move into a new world. The new world in education, in my opinion, will come largely through lifelong learning. It will come through people of all ages that will see learning as a new hobby, as a new way of, of feeling self-esteem and, and re-engaging and eventually also finding better jobs. And with that, Udacity and other companies have an opportunity to infuse better and more scalable and more economical and more engaging ways of education. And I hope that's going to eventually embrace high schools as well. We know today that a team project, like a team discovery, 
the team journey is more fun than learning how to factor polynomials on a piece of paper. We know this. We know today that kids have a hard time focusing when it's Tuesday and we have to do uh, irrational numbers and every student has to have the same thought at the same time. We know that, that is, this industrial uh, level of education is outdated. And it's just a question of time until we get modern education, engaging education back into everyone's classroom. So tell me, what is Sebastian saying there? He's saying what many parents believe and experience on a day-to-day basis, which is that all of a sudden their kids have lost any chance at really getting a school and comprehensive learning experience. Public school is a whole different conversation, and that's what kind of what he was talking about. But when you apply it to higher ed, all of a sudden you have these 18-year-olds who have the choice on whether or not they're going to put up with a higher education experience that's based on Zoom. And what's happening is over 40% of students are opting for a gap year, people are unenrolling, and we see someone like Ian choosing to take, you know, instead of getting that entrepreneurship degree, he's just going to go out and be an entrepreneur and see what happens next. I think what I'm doing is a stronger signal than a college degree can be. Because it doesn't just show that I sat through the classes and did the homework and maybe learned the subject matter. I, you know, I'm building a business. I can show people what milestones I've hit and what products I've created and how I've solved problems for other people. The relationships that I'm building while starting this business have been huge. You know, it's not what you know, it's who you know is still something that holds true. Doing that versus just the signal of a degree, I think, is more powerful in my case, at the very least. I don't worry as much about the students that are taking gap years right now and planning on going back to school. That was Jamira chiming in. They're going to be fine because they'll finish, they'll graduate, they'll have their network. I do worry about people that are like, oh, kids shouldn't go to college. They should go and do, you know, go straight into the workforce and or go and like, take classes online and then be able to get a job. And the unintended consequence is kind of what you were alluding to, which is, well, now you don't have a network and now you don't have this um, credential that you can rely on. And the reason why those two things matter is because they act as a safety net. Sorry, I was going to use a curse word and I should not. (laughs) You totally can. Chris is very used to it. (laughs) Well, I was just going to say when like when, when like she hits the fan, And things go very badly, whether it's in the economy or in the world, and we're in moments of crisis, the people that are much better off are the people that have some form of safety net. And partially that is community. So some form of network that you can rely on. So for example, when I think about if I were to lose my job, I can call up the tens of thousands other Stanford alumni and say, hey, like, are you hiring? Hey, can you help me out? Hey, can we do a consulting? Something like that. And so there's a level of community that you can rely on. And then the other piece is the credential. So if I, again, if I lose my job tomorrow, the reality is that I have two degrees in my back pocket and I can go and try to apply to another job. And people will give me the benefit of the doubt of saying, oh, well, this person has two degrees. They must be competent, right? If all of a sudden I don't have a credential and I don't really have a network and I'm in a moment of crisis, that is a really, really bad situation to be in. And so I try to not be the person that says like, oh, remove college, abolish college. Like we should not like be doing that in, um, in any way, shape or form. I'm more of the person that says like, hey, let's figure out how to make college make sense for people. Let's make it affordable. Let's make it accessible. Let's make it flexible. But let's not forget that there are components of it that still matter to people, especially folks that are ones 
that can't rely on their families or can't rely on other people as, you know, their quote unquote safety net. What most people miss is this concept of self-directed learning requires or assumes a certain level of self-efficacy that people have. Very small subset of the population has that because of the way that we are currently taught, because of the circumstances in which you grow up, because for a whole range of reasons, like because you have a bunch of responsibilities and the concept of you have self-efficacy in terms of what you think you can be and what you can study and what you can learn. Like those are, there are lots of reasons for why self-directed learning is hard. And so I actually am a big believer in that there's going to be a lot of unbundling of education and people will have more options available to them. And I do think like when, when we're talking about things like masterclass, for example, like people will happily watch masterclass because it's entertaining and it's educational. You'll learn something, but in an entertaining way, and that's much easier to do on your own. But if you're talking about like actually learning, like I want to learn Excel, or I want to learn a skill, or I want to like pick something up. I think that people need support in doing that. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the funny, it's like the unbundling and the bundling and the unbundling and the bundling, right? Like <laughs> yeah. you have all these different options. How do I curate it for you so that you can think about how do you curate it for you and then package it around with some wraparound services so that you can get to and through it. And then come in on the other end and get a job if that's what you want to do, you know, and that's just my perspective. And again, it also, I know that that perspective is somewhat colored by my own experiences and the experiences of my family. Like, I know that it's not easy. I mean, I'm always impressed when someone chooses to drop out of school like Ian and pursue something so crazy as starting a company. It's what we do day in, day out covering seed stage companies, people giving up their safety nets and going this crazy route. But I also am always curious, like, what gave you the right? What gave you the ability to do that in the first place? Well, I think one reason that we see this happen a lot with younger people is that they don't know as much and they're not as encumbered by responsibility and mortgages and three children. And so I think that's why a lot of founders end up being relatively youthful. You know, I started a company in college, actually, Natasha, way back in the day, and it was my hope and my dream to not go back to school, to be done with taking tests because calculus was hard and I was sad. Uh, sadly, uh, TechCrunch covered my company's birth and death that summer. So that didn't work out. And I went back to school, but <laughs> it's always fun to hear how different people ended up in the entrepreneurial track. You know, like I said, growing up in Nashville, my grandparents run a business that repairs medical imaging equipment. And what that meant for me was that growing up, my cousin and I would spend the summers in our grandparents' basement with as many computers as we wanted. And we got to just screw around with them eight hours a day, all summer. Having that environment where you have the resources to just play around with technology that is honestly way above what an eight-year-old should have reasonable access to really gave me sort of a confidence of, I don't know how to use this, but I maybe I can figure it out. My high school had a program that they called Innovate. This is Pope John Paul II High School in Hendersonville, Tennessee. And it got implemented my sophomore year where They took away the eighth class period, called it innovate, you know, with an eight at the end, and made it an elective period. And that elective period was pretty much an opportunity for you to go explore what you think you were interested in. 
So if there were internships, students could go shadow a heart surgeon. There was robotics. So I did robotics three times, and that actually was what put me on the path towards my business now. For me, that was incredibly valuable because it gave me the opportunity to explore things I thought I was interested in, in a low stakes environment. Right. It's almost a, it's almost a shift in the way that you think about education. There's the holders of the knowledge. They have the picture of knowledge and you are the empty vessel that they pour the knowledge into, right? That's the old system. Yeah. And what this class and what I think things are shifting to is teaching the teaching people, teaching young adults, teaching kids how to fill their own glass. Yeah. I think beyond just teaching them how to fill their own glass, it's making them realize that they're thirsty. Because once you realize you're thirsty, you'll do whatever you can to fill that glass. Okay, two things, Natasha. Thank you for doing this, because one, I've learned a lot. But two, my impression is that we're still figuring out so much about EdTech that actually no one really knows what's going to happen in 2021, and that we're going to have to keep our eyes peeled and our ears open. Totally. EdTech is something that is so deeply emotional, which is what makes it fun to cover. And I think the question that we'll we'll have to keep asking is what gets venture-backed, what doesn't, and how we think about success and job placement. But let me just say, I am very excited this conversation gets to be had. Thank you all for listening to an episode about EdTech. I will continue reporting on this, so make sure to check out my coverage. From the Equity Crew, thank you for spending at least a part of your Thanksgiving with us, and we will see you back on Monday for regularly scheduled programming.